I, I think I find some peace in just continuing to do the stuff that I want to do that is for me and people like me and just knowing that like I don't I don't think my voice is wanted or needed in a like a 5e world I don't think I have stuff to make those people happier and I don't think I would be happy doing it Hi, welcome to the Die Cook Podcast. I am Gary Snow, and with me is Adam Vass. And Adam has been prolific in his design. Uh, he's got an amazing Patreon, and he's been doing awesome work in the uh, game design field. And I uh, just want to say, Adam, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about all the many uh, machines that drive this weird hobby job for me. <laughs> Well, we want to get into all those great games that you've been making. But first of all, as always, we got to ask how you even got started in this crazy business. Yeah, um, I started, I actually didn't grow up playing role-playing games like a lot of people. I didn't play Dungeons and Dragons until uh, 2016. And uh, I played 3.5 at this event that my local comic book shop was putting on. And uh, it was at this brewery in town that used to be a church so there's these big stained glass windows and a very like fantasy tavern aesthetic to it and you would just come in for one night and play role-playing games and that was my first exposure to it um before that I was into like playing strategy games and and board games and stuff and uh that was a very like pivotal moment for me insofar as experiencing a game that there was structure and there was rules but there was this freedom to really do whatever you want and not necessarily worry about like the programmed entries that like, if you were playing a video game, you can only do what they program. But in this, I could, you know, squeeze someone's skulls in my hand until it broke and like <laughs> crazy extra stuff that you wouldn't expect someone to accommodate. And that was really eye-opening for me. So that began my journey and it wasn't long. I think uh, a lot of the time when I get into a hobby or entertainment, I like to pick it apart and see what makes it work and what makes certain things I like and certain things I don't like. And so if that was in January or February 2016, that summer, I was already developing my own stuff and writing. And uh, I think that fall is when I published my first role-playing stuff, which was the first edition of Babes in the Wood. And a letter writing solitaire game called All We Love We Leave Behind that I was sort of working on both of those at the same time. And um, obviously those are pretty far off the beaten path already. And my journey from there just gets weirder and further out and more uh, abstract. So I learned fast. I learned, I just dove head in and uh, obsessed over it. And I was doing that part-time until uh, the pandemic started and we were in quarantine. Um, before that, I was a touring musician since I was 19. And obviously with quarantine, there was no touring. So I went full-time with game design and publishing in 2020. And I've been doing that full-time since. And what uh, instrument did you play? I play bass. Oh, awesome. I have an upright bass that uh, I never play because, but I bought it with <laughs> the intention of playing. So yeah, you can, you can uh, try to determine my personality type. Uh, based 
uh, anyways, love the, love the base. So that's very cool. And uh, in that environment, like I mean, it's a very creative environment, and I can't help but draw some parallels between like rock posters and kind of the rock aesthetic and a lot totally. of your games. How did yeah. how did your skills evolve over that time? Um, that's funny because that's definitely where a lot of my background comes from. I think visual art would come first. Um, I always have drawn I took every art class in school that I could um, and a lot of that was based on outsider art or um, I learned a lot from yeah show posters and street art and kind of again like not traditional not fine art kind of pathway um, I tend to like those outliers and those like freak approaches to traditional media so um, as a teenager I got super into that style of visual art, started getting into printmaking and screen printing and uh, was also playing music at the time. So, you know, I was designing my band's record covers, I was making posters um, and I continue to do that now, but that really translated super easily for me with games and making, you know, book covers that don't look stock or, or like the last sort of 30 years of fantasy artwork. I, I want to be weird and I want to stand out. And I get to use a lot of these uh, abstract educations that I got from hardcore music and from all, all of that uh, necessity and bring it into my game stuff, which offers it both, a, I think a unique aesthetic visually, but also I bring those visual themes into gameplay and like the settings and stuff too. So it really permeates through my whole gaming mind, the, the grit of it, the Xerox copy of it and the, you know, neck face freaks of it and that sort of stuff. So tell me, when did uh, World Champ Game Company kind of come into play in the naming of it and like the philosophy behind it as far as like the aesthetic of even your game company? Yeah, that was really a day one thing for me too. Um, comes back to that sort of parallel between uh, DIY culture and band and music culture and what I was bringing to gaming. Um, I wanted to have a recognizable brand. I wanted to be, you know, the, the belt I think is very iconic and the monogram is very iconic. Um, and it was important to me to start that early because those things tend to only work the more you use them. And so I wanted it on the back of every book. I wanted it on the, you know, inside cover always to the extent that you would see that stamp and you would recognize that's, I made that. And that, you know, if that's your thing, here's a little flag to say, this one might also be your thing. Um, so going again with that aesthetic first sort of approach, um, which I think was really rough at the start because I'm one person, I ship my games out of my office and my house, like it, it almost presents this false uh, like level that I'm not at, right? At calling it a company is sort of a lie. And on some level that's deliberate, I want people to take it seriously. I want it to uh, be perceived as of a certain caliber, but in the same way, it's, it can be damning where people expect more from me as an individual in terms of like shipping schedules or 
uh, my ability to offer kind of, I guess, additional support. Um, it is just me behind everything, design, illustration, layout, publishing, distribution, um, which is arguably too much, especially with the uh, amount of games that I'm putting out there. So it's this interesting catch-22 where I want to be perceived as this professional person, but in doing so, it kind of diminishes some of the scrappier DIY qualities that I bring to my games. Did it also have the problem of, because uh, I encountered that a little bit too, is that when, as soon as you put, you know, game company, uh, it takes the personality and your personal touch away from it. Like if it was Adam Vass games, like people go, oh, I like that Adam Vass. I like his personality, but this world champ game company, I don't like who's working for them. Like how many designers do they have? Right. Kind of thing. It's, it's interesting because I think um, at the time, I, you know, I still have my personal social media accounts and stuff. And then I have the games ones. And in a lot of times, I feel a lot more personal on the game account because the industry is small, because it's much more of a communal feeling than just like a person in existence. Um, so I get a lot, I think I imbue world champ with that personality that I don't get to do as much in everyday life. So I think while I do lose some aspect of it by being a name, I've also just, I've heard people, you know, say like they love world champ stuff. They, I have, you know, shirts that say world champ on it. It, it to me feels like it's this happy middle ground of still being hyper-personal because I put so much of myself into the games that I make while still offering enough distance that like it would it would be weird to see someone else wearing a shirt with my name on it but <laughs> with my brand it feels like a, a separation enough that I, I appreciate that they're supporting my work without necessarily the uh, projection or assumption of my individual personality and were uh, you a wrestling fan yeah yeah that's where it comes from for the most part um i i have been a big wrestling fan for a long time i'm actually a little out of it now mostly just because i don't have access to stuff anymore but um, i lived in boston for four or five years and was doing a lot of graphic design uh partnership with the wrestling promotion out there in providence uh that was like right before i started doing game stuff so that was very front of my mind when I started World Champ. There's a lot of, uh, I mean, I'm like an old school territory wrestling fan. I love that yeah. kind of era of uh, wrestling. And, but there's so much crossover. I think a lot of like, you know, people that like tabletop role-playing games tend to like kind of wrestling because I guess it's that, uh, uh, the story behind it. And I mean, totally. you can, I mean, obviously wrestling's not real. I mean, kayfabe and all that, <laughs> but uh but there's a certain amount of like, okay, we know it's not real, but we're going to have fun with it no matter what. Totally. Right? And I, yeah, I think that's really, you have to have that sort of ability to check out, um, to really immerse yourself in like the fun aspects of role-playing. And on some level, you know, a wrestler is a role player. They're playing the role of their character and they're acting out 
this stuff. It's it is a LARP, but yeah, I, I think that's why there's so much commonality is this appreciation for story and character and immersion that goes into both styles of play. And when did you end up like making that first game? Like, do you remember, like, did you have a bunch of them on the go at any given time or was there one that just was your first and your baby? I did a few card games before that weren't role-playing oriented. Um, and it was fun, but it's so much more difficult because it has to be so much more airtight than a role-playing game, which, it, you know, expects the player to fill in the blanks and make it work in a different way. Um, so Babes in the Wood and All We Love We Leave Behind were my first role-playing games. And I worked on them at the same time, even though they're thematically so different. Um, because I just wasn't sure, I wasn't sure what I was doing or what I was going to do with them. Um, at the time I was self-publishing zines. I wasn't a member of a community necessarily. I had not gone to game conventions or I didn't really know anybody else who was doing anything. Um, so I very hesitant, I, I was interested in making stuff and my friends and I would play it, but I didn't necessarily have uh, delusions of grandeur on, on uh, people I didn't know playing them or even having them um, just had zines in my backpack like I kind of always have. So um, yeah, it was an interesting segue from that to publisher. Did you have any games that kind of inspired you or like I know it was uh, Babes in the Wood is kind of powered by the, the apocalypse and that yeah. set or structure, I guess. So the, the first, the original edition of Babes in the Wood uh, was pretty much a reskin of Dungeon World, um, which was kind of my first foray into more indie role playing stuff from Dungeons and Dragons. And, and it's funny, too, because I've never been a fantasy person, but that's obviously the biggest hook. So going from D&D to Dungeon World to then a very like open indie arena um, was a quick plunge for me because I, I wanted to latch onto something thematically and aesthetically that I liked more than, than traditional fantasy. So um, at that time, yeah, like this was 2016. So um, Dungeon World was it for me. I got a copy of uh, Downfall. That was one of my first indie games that I really loved. Um, and Fiasco was a big eye-opener for me, especially in this is a game that tells stories and not necessarily this is a game about winning or combat or like the kind of more mechanical aspects of role-playing that I was lured in with. Fiasco was the was the switch the switch for me of knowing what I want to do, what I enjoy about this, and how I could kind of further my education in this world and and continue that path of, I guess, more story focused stuff. Yeah, and I mean, I can see that in a number of your games that Fiasco uh, totally kind of uh, inspiration where. It's like you can just have a like basically a party and have yeah. sitting around the table playing a game. Yeah, that's definitely a vibe I like. And I think Fiasco does this excellent job too of everyone. It sets expectation really well at the start. 
and you still get to be surprised and impressed by the way that it goes, which feels more like you doing it than it does the game telling you what to do. And that's so interesting and masterful to me that that's what I aspire most of my games to do is get out of the way on some level and give you the, the starting push of, you know, get weird with this and then not prevent you from getting as weird as you want to. It's that whole emergent storytelling. And uh, a lot of your games are also leaning into like all of almost uh, GM less uh, where yeah. it's players only. Yeah. I tend to like that more when I play because uh, I don't know, there's something to just exercising that creativity that GM less games all have and when one player has that light bulb moment that's about to change the story for everybody it feels so cool and i don't want that feeling to be behind this screen of one player gets to sort of pull these strings so that shared responsibility that shared power is really interesting to me both in terms of how it can affect the story and just like how you as players feel afterwards like I loved when you did that and I got to do this and like we all kind of contributed in a more in a really meaningful way. And so you've been you started developing like tinier games like you know uh kind of like uh we just discussed and like kind of uh small pieces and when did you go okay I'm going to start a Patreon to have like a pay per creation of these games. Yeah, that was around this uh, a few months later. Um Patreon was relatively new and I was new to it. Um, but it was this interesting idea to me of like, since I'm making smaller things and I'm making them kind of, I guess without intent or, or without a direction, I just make something. And as you mentioned, like I'm pretty prolific insofar as if I have an idea, I see it through and I get it out there. So Patreon was a way for me to do that, especially at the time I was doing a lot of postcard sized games or one page games. And that was just a fun thing for me to do. And that was a way for me to also learn that there were people who were interested in that and cared about what I was making um, that could help facilitate me making more of them and not having this be sort of a flash in the pan for me where I do a couple things and no one really cares. And then I kind of walk away from it. So I think I launched the Patreon and maybe 2017 uh, and was doing a game a month for until last year, I think was the first time I missed a month. So um, one release every month for five years, plus my bigger tentpole games. Did you find it a lot of pressure to produce one a month where there months uh, that you were just like, yeah, like, I mean, the one that you missed, like, did you go, I don't have it in me or I've got other things that I'm, I'm too busy to do? One. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing because I only charge people when I release something, but it just so happens to be every month. Um, so if I don't make something in a month, I don't get paid that money. And so in that way, there is an, a financial pressure on me to continue making stuff, especially now that I have more patrons and I take it more seriously. I have, I make higher quality stuff and all my patrons get it, which is awesome. Um, but the sort of 
cost benefit analysis of that has always been skewed of like if I get more people and I spend more money on printing it and shipping it, I'm not necessarily making more, but if I don't put something out, then I am losing what I would have made. So um, I think that pressure is internal. I think it's me putting it on myself. My backers have never been upset if I missed a month or if I need extra time or whatever. Um, and the times that I've missed, I think I've, I've missed more since I broke the streak. It's been harder to stay on the monthly, which is, I think, a good thing because I was just so burnt out and didn't notice that I was doing three or four full-scale Kickstarter projects a year with 12 monthly projects that were smaller. And that's just uh, bananas. Like, that's so much art. It's so much just thinking. Like, my brain just was never off. Um, and so much shipping and just, like, so many logistic things to putting that much stuff out that it did get to a point where I was like, if I'm doing a Kickstarter this month, I can't make a zine also. Even though the zines are fun, I get a, a different kind of joy from that. Um, it just became a self-awareness thing to stop doing it every month or to try to make sure I'm in check with myself that I have the ability, the time, the mental strength, the money to put these things out. And if I don't, then I'm at least aware enough now to, to let myself know it's okay to, to miss one. And you mentioned, uh, you know, just the whole creative process. When you come up with an idea, like, can you walk me through the steps of like, from that ideation piece to like finish, like how long does it take? Like, do you make notes or do you ruminate on it for like quite a while before it comes to life? It's, it's obviously with so many projects, the process is different in a lot of different ways, but typically for like a Patreon level game, it's, it's funny because very often I limit myself to a week and I say, if I have an idea on Friday, I want it written by Monday and I want to go to print by the next Friday. And if it's not able to do that, if it's going to take more than that, then it goes into this sort of ether of, can I cut this down for Patreon or should I build this up to be a air quotes real book? Um, but I often start with the story I wanna tell and very, very often that comes from records and movies and kind of external media that I'm putting through my brain filter and blending it up and trying to find component parts and make it mine. Um, a lot of the time too, that thing, that spark can be like a piece of art I see on Instagram or sometimes it's even it's layout. Like um, my most recent Patreon release is called Lucid and I made it starting with this text grid that I saw in like a magazine that was interesting to me that I wanted to kind of dissect and I didn't know what the game was going to be about or what it was going to look like but I knew I wanted to mess with these like hard columns and um, really tight text formatting and so I kind of worked my way backwards from there for a theme and for a setting and then forwards again with the art and the mechanics it's all it's always just a big stew for me and there's no necessarily way of starting here and going 
XYZ in, in, in step. But I would say, yeah, figuring out my story is the first thing. And that usually also comes attached to an aesthetic because I'm picturing the world or I'm picturing the story that's taking place, the characters or whatever visual component that I can then turn into art that is representative of the game that brings the reader into that world and then the mechanics that will support that style of play that I'm envisioning and even I, even just diagnosing what that is. If it's a game where you fight stuff, if it's a game where you're just you know telling a story together or um, not that those are mutually exclusive, but you know mechanically they work differently and, and I wanna make sure that my skeletons always match my the goal of I guess the meat and uh, unfortunately that often also means system design from scratch <laughs> a lot of my patreon games def definitely my most of my kickstarter games but a lot of the patreon ones too come with like whole cloth new mechanical systems they can be inspired by other stuff but I'm not a big hacker I'm I'm trying to let myself be that now this year and take a little bit of weight off my shoulders by starting with something that is a little more uh, built instead of from scratch. So in that decision-making process of like, okay, how do I build it from scratch? Is it, does the content just inform the mechanics where you're like, you know what, I thought I could do it with this, but you know what, I'm going to have to switch it. It's just like any design process. You, you figure out what works for it. Yeah. And I think the, style of play that I'm going for is the most informational thing that leads to mechanical system design for me. So for example, um, my game Cobwebs is a conspiracy horror game and you take turns as the investigator and you're looking for someone who's missing. And as you do, you uncover more and more of this conspiracy horror. Um, and so I knew this is sort of an abstract thought but like I wanted it to feel almost physically that you as the players were going through this spiral so the game is played on this playmat that is a circle and it has tokens that go around it to measure time like how much time is left in the game and it also has you putting dice and tokens and cards uh, on top of the playmat that are getting pulled towards this gravity towards the center which feels like this inevitable danger or collapse and so much of that play experience is that re the revolving around the circle and getting sucked into that gravity and how that is rhyming with your character's journey of looking and getting pulled into this conspiracy and they're by the time they're aware of it it's too late to get out of it oh, i love the uh, layout for that and it's got without without looking too much like it it had like that alfred hitchcock soul bass kind of vibe to it which in the, the d12 for the the calendar essentially i thought it was very clever clever mechanics and design integrated Thank with you. each other with which i have to say i mean i'm not going to try to uh, pump your tires too much but uh, <laughs> it's like all of your stuff like i mean i have to say like i'm very jealous of <laughs> a lot of your games like you you you've been able to come up with so many like i mean i didn't unfortunately i didn't count how many titles you have but it's got to be getting close to like 24 25 i i've never counted but off the top of my head i would 
I, I would think it would be a lot more than that, especially with the month, the monthly Patreon stuff. Um, cause some stuff's out of print now and some stuff is, was digital only or whatever, but I would say I have at least 60 games. Wow. Yeah. In, and they're, and they're all, unique years. And they're all, they all have their kind of special vibe to it. And, uh, you talked about like the actual process of the like design, what software and apps do you use to, to create this? Or do you start with stock art and just manipulate it after that? I, have the benefit of you know having studied art for most of my life so a lot of my art starts on paper with ink um especially you know stuff like necronautilus or uh, my most recent crowdfunded project cyber metal 2012 um every piece of cyber metal art was done in ink and scanned in so and that's a 140 plus page book with art on almost every page. So there's dozens of illustrations with ink that I scan in and I'll color them in, in Photoshop and add textures and stuff and make it more print friendly and, and aesthetic forward. So most of my visual stuff I do in Photoshop, I use InDesign to do text layout. I'm still, I'm definitely not an InDesign expert. I'm lucky because my job pays for my Adobe subscription. Um, there was a while during COVID where I was trying to teach myself how to use Affinity because I recognized that someday I'm probably going to lose the Creative Cloud subscription and I should I should learn. Um, and I haven't, I'm not comfortable there yet. I'm not as in tune with it as I am with Adobe stuff because I started learning Photoshop at 13 in my computer graphics class, like stealing the, the disc, the CD from my school and installing it on my my home computer so um it's something that is second nature it's it's a it's another language and i've been studying it forever so and with you know that said i know how to do the things i know how to do so coloring drawings that i've done or sketching and that kind of stuff comes really easy to me whereas photo manipulation and that kind of obviously those programs have these really wide skill set libraries um, I'm not as trained in, but I'm very honed on the things I know how to do that cater to my style specifically. So um, yeah, for the most part, that's that's what I use Photoshop in, in design. I do use Illustrator quite a bit when I'm making titles. Um, I do a lot of hand lettering and a lot of custom lettering for my games like Necronautilus. The logo is of course like metal inspired, but that was drawn and then made a vector in illustrator um same with some of my more abstract stuff like ether operations where that was like a case study of how illegible can i make this type <laughs> but still be evocative and and neat um so that's been a thing more recently within the last like three years of bringing my lettering uh fascination into games too and not just using fonts or like I, I use a lot of fonts I find online or buy, but lately I've been trying to make my own too. And uh, I had a game I started about two years ago called Hell War that came, it was like, I was building a custom font for the headers and stuff with the intent of giving the font as part of the game file. So when people wanted to design supplements, it would have the same visual language. Um, that stuff's really interesting to me now and like 
becoming more important the more I solidify my own kind of niche in games uh, as something that I can do that I really like doing that maybe not everyone can do, but can help other designers do cool stuff too. Would you ever conceive of uh, doing just the art or just the writing? I know you've mentioned, you know, for Patreon, if people submit, you can like outsource some of the artwork and that kind of thing. But I have to ask your, your work is so unique and so personable to you. And I know you've frequently collaborated with uh, Will Jobs in on a few things, but how much control do you feel comfortable giving up with any project? Yeah, I think the uh, sort of curse of satisfaction is the thing that drives so much of my work in that I have to do the visuals to match the writing, to match the mechanics, to match the physical product. Like, and that comes from an unwillingness or a, in, I guess a, I would call it a inability, but I don't think that's entirely <laughs> true, to defer control or to, to compromise on the thing that I can see in my head, this finished product that I can picture in my head. Um, I think I, I have, last year I did just art for uh, a supplement for Morkborg called Fiskborg that was written by Richard Kelly. And that was just like a crime of convenience where I knew Richard was writing these fish mitting games for Morkborg and I could do that style of ink sprayed terror. So we teamed up on that and it was super dreamy, but that was, I think the first time I'd ever done art for someone else's game book. Um, I did the layout too, and it, it was still a lot of work, but not writing it was huge for me, huge for my brain too, because that was a weird, a weird time for me. And uh, I also was moving from California back to Michigan at that time. So I wasn't entirely, uh, I didn't have my roots in yet. Um, so that was really nice. And then there are other instances like when Will and I made Campfire last year, which is our anthology horror story game, um, we wanted to work with Trevor Henderson for the illustrations because Trevor is such a horror guru. Um, and you know, I love horror, Will loves horror, but Trevor is on another level of understanding and had a very similar vision to us of what we wanted that to be. And I got to still flex some of my muscles with the graphic design on the interior, but the packaging design and the playmat design for that was all Trevor. And it ended up being much more than the sum of its parts. I, I couldn't have pulled that game off on my own and I wouldn't have wanted to. So it ends up benefiting from the collaboration a lot. Um, and I recognize that when I do collaborate, it feels really good and I really like it. But especially with Patreon, where I don't have budget, I and I'm not trying to short anybody, you know, I want to make sure everybody's getting taken care of on a project. Sometimes I recognize that I just have to do it myself to save the money. And sometimes I still end up really happy with what I make when I do that uh, concession, even though sometimes there's an artist I really would love to work with that I just can't uh, manage the, the budget for. And how did you and Will connect in the first place? 
Will and I met at a zine meetup at, I think it was Gen Con. It was either Gen Con or Origins um, in 2018, I think. And yeah, it was just this sort of random thing I saw on Twitter, like Zinster meet up at the hotel lobby or whatever. And five people maybe showed up because this was before Kickstarter was doing zine quest and there was like really a zinester culture. I mean, there always has been, but before zines was like a big thing in the RPGs. So the people that were there were already kind of like my people, uh, especially at a convention, which is very, which can skew very corporate and very like hustly. This was artists and outsiders and weirdos making weird stuff. And we traded and just became fast friends. And uh, shortly after that, we both did the first zine quest on Kickstarter separately, just coincidentally. And a few months after that, when I was moving to California, um, a friend of mine was driving the van and it was raining in Colorado and I was kind of drifting in and out of sleep and had this idea to do a game like to kickstart a game that didn't exist and I knew Will was the person I wanted to do that with um, because it was weird and out there and people weren't doing it and it was a huge risk and they were very about that and uh, that was the beginning of our like games partnership of working together on a very regular basis and become he, Will's my best friend now so it's just one of those strange perfect storms of like being in the same place at the same time and having a similar interest and in wanting to do weird artsy projects um it really facilitated our design partnership really well and now uh we we did that game it was called a guide to casting phantoms in the revolution it's out of print now um that was right before COVID hit too so since then we did the Brain Trust podcast where we do game design stuff almost every week. Well, we were weekly for a while. And uh, then we both just sort of burnt out and took a little break. But designing stuff and talking designing theory and that sort of thing on the podcast. We have the, the Discord server, the Brain Trust too, which is just a designer community where we riff and hang out and, and kind of just sharpen each other's blades. And that feels really good. But Will's easily my number one collaborator we work super well together we have this chemistry that i've never had with another creative person that's just really invigorating and then uh we both really love just seeing it through too it's not enough to just have the idea we usually take them to their logical conclusions and that tends to be these big boxed print games that are I, I would say pretty different than really what anybody else is doing in the indie RPG world right now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's like pretty fascinating the um, the whole process that you've been under between Patreon and Kickstarter and like in Patreon too, you print, you have a level for- Oh yeah. And that's gotta uh, that's be- me for- <laughs> That's tough. <laughs> for sure. But that's- like I said, growing up in, in music and hardcore and it's the difference between a record and a download, you know, like you want that 
disc in your hand. You want that full album art. You want the lyric booklet. Or even just going to a show, you want the, the shirt or the like the memorabilia aspect of it. There's a collector's aspect to it. Um, as you can tell behind me, I have quite a collection of, I just like to own stuff and touch things and have all this sort of ephemera that comes with them. And that's what I really want my games to be too. I want them to be these physical artifacts of play. I want you to, I want them to be cherished, but I also want them to be at the bottom of your bag and they get destroyed because you just keep putting new stuff in your bag, but you always like have it around. And there's just something to that, you know, like Linus's dirty blanket or whatever, like it, it's more yours and, and there's some real charm to that. But yeah, it comes from so many places. I, I mentioned too, I was into screen printing and printmaking. So when I got into doing like risograph stuff, I took a class on printing risograph and made a game called Diagnostics. It's like part of my class and got to print that myself. Got like full, did the whole thing from hand painted to scanned in to print to ship like with my hands. And that's the satisfaction I get. I'm not a big digital file person i'm not a big uh like download even when i when i pick up pdfs from itch or whatever I, I usually print them and make my own zines and add that to my collection because that's the way i engage with the media and i want people to engage with my stuff that way and speaking of itch and all the different platforms that you do sell on and Patreon and what kind of works for you? Like, what have you found? Like, what's the secret formula for you? Or are you still trying to hone in on that? Yeah, I think it, I, this is maybe a consequence of what I was just talking about, but really the only thing that works for me on a regular basis that I can rely on is my own website store. Uh, just worldchamp.io, where people can just buy games and I ship the games to them. Um, I guess the second thing that's reliable would be Patreon because it's been so fruitful for so long that people will stay on and people respect what I do there. And that's really great. But I do have digital stuff on itch and I have some stuff. Most of my catalog is digital also on drive through RPG. But I get al almost nothing from digital sales um, relative to my physical sales. And that's because I am a print first designer. I don't think that's because I'm doing a bad job necessarily, but I want you to have the book. Um, and I also will give people downloads if they buy a book from my store too. So it's kind of like it's as a, audience member, the best way to get everything you want at a still a good price. I think I undercharge a lot of the time because it comes from that punk rock ethos of wanting everyone to have it and not worrying about how much it costs and trying to do sliding scale uh, pricing on some of my bigger books. So, you know, if you can afford to pay extra, you can offset the cost for someone who can't afford it. And um, just sort of the idea that games are a luxury and games are a privilege to to read and to play and to own so trying to make that as accessible as possible and part of that includes being on every platform that I can so because there's not a lot I, I guess there's more crossover now between people who use itch and drive through but they used to be very different audiences 
and I still want both audiences to have access to my stuff. So I would just clone stuff, have it in multiple places. And I think that's good. I, good advice for anybody doing self-publishing is just have it available in every place that you can. And obviously drive-throughs cut is a lot higher than itches. And there are other places like dumb road. If you wanted to have your own like hosted download space or um, I just use Squarespace for my website. That's my store. Um, but just having it in as many places as possible, you will find people, people will find your stuff much easier. Um, and if they dig it, they might, you know, click through and find out more about you and find your other games and want to do that deep dive with you. And do you have like a go-to printer that you use all the time or do you? I have a lot. <laughs> Uh, I have a lot of printers, um, mostly because I do different formats pretty often. Um, in in 2020, I did a game on a face mask. Like it was like a three sentence game and it was printed on a cloth face mask that you could wear. And I've that's a obviously a different printer that I would get my zines from. I've done a couple games on scratch off tickets. Um, that's its own bespoke print shop. There's a place in my town called Brownlee Press that does zine printing and poster printing. And so I'll go there, especially because it's down the street from where my partner works. So I'll, I'll just pop in, get something printed that day and have it that night. Like that's a real great privilege for me. Um, I use Mixum fairly often, like a lot of people do for zine printing and Jukebox, which is in, in Canada, which is a very similar quality and, and uh, price point. Um, yeah, I just have, it, it also comes from, again, the music industry of like, I can source product printing real easy and get a good price and know where it's coming from, know my timeline and my, and my budget line. And um, that's a skill I didn't realize that I was developing for a very long time doing band merch, but has come in with doing World Champ really really great <laughs> and do you have like boxes and boxes of uh books kind of in a bedroom waiting to yeah just... so, <laughs> um, i mean even yeah again behind me this is all a campfire um and since it's a box game it takes up a lot more space but uh in my closet in my office i have all of my zines in the ikea square shelves um whereas uh, hardcover books they come in cases and I just have stacks of cases currently in my dining room because I just reprinted Necronautilus after it went out of print um, but I'm very very slowly moving those to storage and and dealing with cases on a more uh, as needed basis especially because Cyber Metal 2012 is coming soon and that's going to also be probably 40 cases of books maybe more uh, yeah it's, it's taking, I, I am lucky I, I bought my house and so there's no shortage of rooms, but right now every room is filled with cases of books. And the shipping part of it, like how, how do you achieve that? Because to me, that's almost overwhelming as far as like, do you have like envelopes everywhere or postage machine or? I, I have this next to the zines and stuff in the closet. I also have every kind of mailer. I got the bubble mailer, the flat mailer, the boxes of different sizes, and it's an organized chaos. On top of the, those shelves is like all the poly bags so I can keep things 
safe from water damage, my scale, my stickers, because I throw stickers in all my orders and that kind of stuff. Um, over here, I've got the label printer and tape gun and all that stuff. So it's a non-linear assembly line in here. <laughs> I know. I mean, you are essentially a, a one-man band, uh, so to speak. Totally. You're doing everything from the writing to the layout to the sales to the shipping to... Um, do you ever go, you know what, I'm just going to go work for somebody that's doing a 5e product and I'll be happy <laughs> there. I often wonder if that would be the case or if I would be left wanting more, some, something that's more creatively satisfying. Um, I actually just last year started working at the farmer's market one day a week. And that is that to me of like, this does not engage my brain in the way that my creative work does. And it is invigorating to me. It feels amazing because I'm not attached to the product. I don't, I am happy if someone buys it, but I'm not hurt if they don't. And because it's just, I just am in the Midwest and people are friendlier enough and, you know, they just say hi on a Saturday morning. That's something that I'm not getting in my office as I work by myself most of the time. And in those down moments when the market's slower is when my brain starts to churn and sometimes I'll you know work a six hour shift and come home with my like little hand my my pocket notebook has a full game in it and I can I can develop that and my sort of idle brain at work came up with that and it's different than that full immersion I have to do everything on this really grand scale kind of development that I often do on my own so yeah I I, I often wonder if I could if there was a way that I could take a step back and still feel happy and um, so much of my self-worth, I think comes from that ability to create and that desire to have ideas and see them to fruition that I don't think I could do less than what I'm doing. But then when I start to get those burnout symptoms, I'm dying to know what I can do less to, to survive that um, pursuit of my idea. Is there uh, like a roadmap for you in your head where you go, you know, I've always wanted to try this or I have a few like big tentpole games that I'm kind of thinking of and what's, what's the future hold for you? That's a, I don't know. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. I am going back to touring. I mentioned at the start, I'm a, I was a touring musician before COVID and I have one booked for this fall for the first time since 2019. And I think that's going to alleviate a lot of the pressure that I put on myself to be this way, way productive publisher. Um, partly because I won't be able to ship because I'll be gone for however many weeks. And also in part because it's not the sole source of my income anymore. Um, and that's a massive relief. And I think on some level that will benefit that sort of pure creativity that I'm wanting more than this sort of grind of doing four Kickstarters a year plus 12 monthly games that I just need to be able to afford my life. Um, that was never really my intent. That was a COVID concession that I made. And it was still, to me, better than abandoning those creative hopes and, and doing something more uh, mundane or, or stable. Um, and it worked out this long, but yeah, I, I flirt with burnout really often. 
Um, even this year, I did the Cyber Metal 2012 crowdfund in January. And last month, I did a crowdfund for another game called Soulburner that I'm writing now. So that's that's two, and it's not June yet. You know, that's that's what most people do in a year, if if that. And they're both full scale, full production books. So um, I kind of lost the plot on this one, but I am spinning a lot of plates, and I often think. I I, ju- I I like spinning plates, but I would like maybe just a couple less. Do you find, and you know, you don't. Maybe it's prying too much into your life a bit, so apologize for that. But you you are obviously successful. Love your games. I think they're amazing. But in my head, I go, why aren't you more successful? Because like it's awesome work. And do you ever kind of get frustrated as far as like like your your stuff could be like so prominent that iconic actually do you ever kind of feel like how come how come i'm not getting more and you're you're successful don't get me wrong but how come not more uh truthfully i think that often because it's such a crapshoot to see what games stick and what ones don't um cyber metal 2012 only pre-sold about 300 copies Whereas Necronautilus did a thousand in, in Kickstarter. And part of that I think was because it wasn't on Kickstarter, it was on GameFound and that was sort of a mess and uh, its own sort of experiment that arguably failed. But yeah, I, I get that a lot. I get jealous a lot of seeing people sell more and do less. I, I, I think that's normal that you're comparing yourself to other people. And I can definitely fall victim to that, like, what if mentality, like, what am I doing wrong that's not resonating with people? Or how am I not finding this audience? Because something like cyber metal to me is the coolest thing I can think of. So why doesn't anybody connect with that or think it's as cool as I do? And I think I make, I, I think I find some peace in just continuing to do the stuff that I want to do that is for me and people like me and just knowing that like I don't I don't think my voice is wanted or needed in a like a 5e world I don't think I have stuff to make those people happier and I don't think I would be happy doing it so I get to stay true to that creative spark I get to make freaky stuff and I might be cutting out 80% of my potential audience, but that 20% that's left are people who want weirder, more artsy, more out there stuff. And they're going to come back to me. Like they're going to see that that's what, that's what I am through and through and hopefully connect with that. You know, I want someone who picks up Necronautilus to come back and get cyber metal because they share DNA, but they're very different things. And if you like one, you're you're probably going to like the other because I'm the sort of curator of this whole brand and, and my design. Um, it can be frustrating when I look at it in a numerical sense. And especially, like I said, when I went full-time as a game publisher, when I didn't necessarily want to, but COVID sort of forced my hand. 
then it forced me to just look at things in a sales oriented way. And that was not healthy. And that was not satisfying uh, as a creative person. But obviously, I can't afford to be a creative person if nothing is selling. So I think I've kind of found a happy middle ground there. I still get to make stuff. I still can take some risks. But I've also worked at this long enough that I've established an audience that trusts that I'm going to do a good job with the weird stuff that I'm messing with. Well, I like, and from the interviews that I've done, uh, the one thing that I've noticed over time is there's no such thing as an overnight success. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> a lot of hard work goes into that. So, uh, if, if for my money, uh, hopefully, you know, interviews like this, uh, can, can help uh, because like I said, you're doing amazing work. Uh, I think it's pretty uh, innovative. You're probably one of the more innovative designers that I've seen out there. So uh, take that for what it's worth. I, I appreciate that. I like to think those things of myself, but it, it feels obviously very good when somebody else tells me that too. Well, I uh, just want to say, you know, thanks again for uh, joining me uh, today and who's, who's with you. This is Beans. He started crying. I thought it would uh, absolve the, the, the noise if he came in, but now he's trying to <laughs> kick my ass. So, <laughs> Well, uh, thank you to uh, Beans for letting you uh, talk to us for a little <laughs> bit today. And uh, I'm going to have all your links in the uh, description and the show notes. And I encourage Great. people to uh, check out some of the stuff that you're doing. And, you know, once again, well done. Amazing work. Uh, hope to see more of it in the future. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I don't know what is next, but there's always something next. I'm always working on eight things at the same time, so. 